Welcome back to this month's episode of BFR Radio. And something a little bit different. Normally, I review an article and go into someone who is doing BFR in a practical sense. I've got a little bit of both. And what I've got is PhD scholar. In fact, almost he's got his revisions in. His name's Sam Halley. Welcome aboard. Thanks, Chris. Nice to be here, mate. Yeah, we've been talking about this for a little bit. I met Sam at a strength and conditioning conference a few years ago, and uh, we had some great conversation in the hallway. And I said, oh, you got to come onto the podcast. And at the time, he just wasn't ready. And he has submitted his PhD. You want to just tell us where you're at with your PhD at the moment? I started my PhD in 2016, ran out of funding early 2019, and submitted late 2019. I know that my thesis has been marked and the revisions are due any time in the next week or so. It's exciting times. An immense relief when I think you first submit it and then I guess it's holding on just waiting for that final confirmation. That's great work. Ah, Feels good. So Sam, how about we just begin normally a little bit about yourself, your, your journey into academia into the area of BFR uh, before we get into the article today or the articles. Sure. So I originally did a Bachelor of Science back at University of WA. I started like 2011 and I think, and I started in chemistry actually. So I finished a full chemistry major in a Bachelor of Science and then I decided towards the end of that that I'd tack on a second major in sports science purely because I just found it was really interesting. i just drop into my brother's lectures and just sit there for a bit. I think the chemistry background has made me potentially a little bit more analytical with my judgments in sports science and give me maybe a bit of an advantage there. So after I finished my double major, I went into an honours research project um, that was a conjunction between West Australian Institute of Sport and UWA. So at the time, uh, my supervisor, Dr. Martin Binney, who's a physiologist at WACE, and my head supervisor was Dr. Pete Peeling. And initially, I didn't care whatever research project that I did. I just wanted it to be in a high-performance sport because I just saw that that was such an amazing thing to aspire towards. So essentially, the, the topic of ischemic preconditioning was just handed to me by Binney. And he just said, look, mate, we've got this performance enhancing technique. We want you to have a look into it. And we've got a project for you. Are you keen? So I just took that and went with it. I finished my project there between UWA and WACE. And then I had about a year and a half of just working there. I also play a lot of beach volleyball, relatively high level. So I was keeping myself busy with that until I got an offer for a PhD scholarship, fully funded from Western Sydney Uni. So I made the leap over from Perth over to Sydney and jumped in with Dr. Jason Siegler, Rick Lovell and Paul Marshall at Western Sydney Uni and had three and a bit years there of torturing those guys with my uh, superfluous writing style uh, until we're done. So yeah, I've come out of it. I've had a lot of fun doing it. Anyone that says a PhD is hard work, it's, uh, well, it's only hard work if you think of it of being work. It was actually quite a fun little funded ride, really. That's wonderful. And so ischemic preconditioning, do you want to just, I've covered it a little bit in some of the papers that I reviewed on BFR Radio, but did you want to just tell everyone what is ischemic preconditioning? And then we're going to get a little bit into your first paper, which I think helps explain that a little bit more. 
Ischemic preconditioning originates from myocardial science and ischemia itself is really just a term for a restriction of blood flow within some skeletal muscle or tissue and it really just deprives that tissue of oxygen for a period of time. It's very basic. The term ischemic preconditioning first originated when a researcher found that if you placed some skeletal tissue under ischemia, so you restricted the oxygen inflow through restriction of the blood, you would then get a compensation effect that would improve the survival rate of that cell following an extended ischemic period. So this first experiment looked at having four sequential 10-minute periods of ischemia within a piece of tissue, let it sit for an hour, and then look at the survival rate of those cells. And we found that the survival rate was increased by 75%. So it was noted that in deoxygenated conditions, you can improve survival rate. Fast forward to 2010, around about, some researchers thought, if we exercise really, really hard and we severely drop our muscle oxygenation, maybe we're inhibiting our exercise capacity. But if we use this ischemic preconditioning technique, maybe we can actually recover some of that capacity. So the researchers looked at using blood pressure cuffs around a muscle mass and inflating it for about five minutes on and then deflating. And whilst it's deflating, you put the blood pressure cuff around another skeletal mass. So you can put it on your arms, you can put it on your thighs, so alternating. And what this did was it showed that if you did around about 30 minutes of ischemic preconditioning on your skeletal mass prior to an event, you could improve your performance by around about 2 to 3%. I think anyone would take that, especially at that elite level as well. With respect to that, you spoke about the heart that was with animals. There was also some good studies out there in particular around myocardial infarctions as well. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. So the technique spent from the early 80s through till now. It's, it's, it's really proliferating through uh, myocardial research. And it took through until around about 2004 for that to evolve from being more of a invasive procedure of like arterial cross clamping to then evolve into just using a blood pressure cuff. So as soon as it made the jump into using a blood pressure cuff, I think it becomes a, a much more applicable uh, technique to use in sports science. That's right. So we're fast forwarding from medicine into sport. A few studies are starting to show we've got a few percent improvement of performance. And, you know, I've used the word uh, money for jam or money for rope. You're essentially sitting there, you've got the cuff on, inflating, deflating, about four cycles over a 30-minute period, and then you just go and perform. That's correct, is it? You're just doing nothing during that period. Yeah, and you're looking at a period that's not going to impede upon a warm-up either. So you look at the research right now and the mechanisms that are involved, somewhere around about an hour before any sort of activity looks to be pretty useful. So you can sit there for your 40 minutes, complete your preconditioning, and then go into whatever warm-up that you need for your event, and then probably another 30, 40 minutes you can start your event. That's fantastic for those people who are looking at competing, and I think the big fear is, is that we're doing something extra on top of what they're already doing. There's no energy cost. You're just sitting there, and you know you can actually just obviously just be talking to your coaches or to your fellow teammates as well. Let's then move just briefly into your first paper. Just, I, I guess, 
what I'd like to tease out in this is some deeper understanding around ischemic preconditioning, just so it gives everyone a little bit more understanding on how that leads into paper number two, which from uh, an applied viewpoint is, this is just absolute gold paper number two. So just give a little bit of a deeper meaning uh, to, to help explain potentially what we might be seeing in paper number two. So the fundamental takeaway that we get from paper number one here is that ischemic preconditioning is somewhat task dependent. And we found that in the lowered oxygen environment, so when we are performing in hypoxia, IPC tends to be a little bit more uh, effective. So we found that when you weren't taking in hypoxic air, you didn't get the benefits in this exercise format. But when you were taking in hypoxic air, you would get an increase in deoxyhemoglobin accumulation, which would represent that you are having an increased delivery of oxygen to your muscles. So fundamentally, the harder that you're working and the more stress with your muscles, the more effective that IPC will be. So it really shows that in the lower intensity stuff that you're doing, it's not really going to have any sort of effect, but the harder that you are working and the more threat, because we kind of travel back to this whole myocardial origin, the more threat that your body kind of perceives there, the better that this endogenous mechanism, so this internal mechanism that's already there, is going to be activated to improve your performance by supplying your muscles with oxygen. So if we think about, in a practical sense, rugby sevens, repeat sprint efforts, that the athletes might be doing, you know, if we can find ways of improving the oxygen delivery to the muscles, that's obviously going to have a performance benefit over repeat sprint bouts during the game. Certainly. There's some very mechanistic things that go to show that your rate of PCR resynthesis is going to be accelerated uh, with this. But again, it's like how badly is your system already stressed and that's when the IPC is going to have the biggest effect. That's right. And in your paper, you also looked at some other measures as well. So typically from a performance or a SNC background, we would think about just time, time decrement, power outputs, weights lifted. You're also looking at some other aspects as well that potentially might give a, a, a bigger picture. Is that correct? Yeah. So in this current paper, we wanted to look at the development of peripheral and central fatigue. We used a combination of EMG and superimposed uh, twitches to really probe that pathway. So whilst it's not a direct observation of exactly what's going on, it gives us a pretty good inference. Uh, there was speculation early on that IPC could have some sort of effect on the neural pathways, so the neural development of fatigue. So we really wanted to see, was that originating from potentially an increase in voluntary activation of the muscles, or was that something that was happening at the level of the muscle? So throughout all this, we monitored our power output, the work done. We looked at potentiated twitch torque as well as a measure of the peripheral fatigue development. And we looked at voluntary activation as a measure of the central fatigue development, almost in an ironic twist throughout my PhD, which was focused at this potential neural effect. We didn't find that there was so much of a neural effect at all, which is, you know, as a PhD, it, you're looking for that big effect. That would be your thing. And it's a, it's a lot harder to write about null effects, but 
we didn't find that there was any sort of physical effect within this exercise protocol. But again, it, it kind of highlights that it is very much task dependent. If you look at some of the other exercise protocols that are used where you might be doing successive repeat efforts, but they're extended and they have a greater taxing on the aerobic system, then you'll probably be more likely to find an effect. But when you're really looking at these short, sharp intervals, like this, where there isn't so much of a taxing on the aerobic system, it didn't find as much of an effect. Yeah, and just to put it in context there, in the paper, you did leg extensions, a simple way of just saying it, just leg extensions maximally versus, say, in these other papers, which might have been some sort of Wingate cycling test or a running test or so forth. My most favorite example out of all these uh, research pieces on IPC and hypoxia in particular is the 5K cycling time trial. And that was like a Francois Below Penelope Paradis Deschenez paper. Those guys found great performance improvements if you use IPC, uh, something to the magnitude of around about 2.5%. But under hypoxia, they increased that performance increase to around about 3.5%. So that's kind of a nice little example of how exactly this can be magnified. I think as researchers, you always want to show that you've made some sort of great discovery or added to the the body of evidence that's out there to say that, yes, it is a good thing. But sometimes I think also it's not a bad thing as well to to some experiments just to show, hey, there was this is what it is. And then leading into paper number two, which I think you know, everyone's going to really, these, this is the nugget of gold that you're about to expose in my, in my opinion. Uh, but was there anything from your lessons learned in that first paper, which you took into paper number two, perhaps? And again, this, this paper is still yet to be published. It's under review at JSCR at the moment. But uh, the potential that there is for an increase in oxygen delivery to the muscle, we, we just wanted to probe exactly what that could be. And I, I feel like it was just something left on the table without having to look at it in a practical sense because you look at leg extensions and the model that was used, it's a nice thing for basic physiology. But in terms of practical application for sport, it doesn't offer too much. So when there's a group of athletes that are willing to go through some experimental measures for you and you think you can have a genuine effect, then you take that opportunity. And it just so happened that with the waist kayaking crew, and the guys at waste, we could we could actually find a use for this. Okay, so you've taken that information, you've reformatted that into, I guess, a more applied type of study. Uh, so we're, we're looking at kayakers, and I do know, as you know, as you alluded to there in cycling, that people have used it as as a performance enhancer, I guess, a passive performance enhancer. You know, obviously the paper's still in review, but you're able to allude to what happened within this paper. So. This one requires a little bit of explanation of the experimental design, which will really give meaning to the results. So initially we wanted to look at, can you use IPC to enhance the performance of kayaking athletes, especially when it's uh, significantly more upper body power than some of the other events. So we wanted to see if you do IPC on the legs, can you improve something that is powered generally by the arms, even though there is a lot of core and trunk power that goes into kayaking. Secondarily, we wanted to see the real life application of this. So kayaking is an event where you 
you often have multiple events in one day. So you might have a heat and a semi-final on a single day, and then the next day maybe you have a final. So we wanted to say, is it viable to use in some sort of regatta where you have two events? So the experimental design had two separate time trials that was spaced out by 80 minutes. Our control condition had no IPC at all. So just passive rest prior to the first time trial, prior to the second time trial. Our second leg looked at IPC prior to the first time trial, but not prior to the second. And our third one was IPC prior to the first and prior to the second time trial. What we found out of that was that if you use IPC prior to the first time trial, then you would get around about a 3% increase in performance. So these are time trials of 1,000 meter kayak ergometers. So a 3% performance improvement in that. If you then didn't use it prior to the second one, that effect would more or less wash out. If you did use it prior to the second one, then you would replicate the benefits of the first IPC intervention. How good is that? Just by sitting there doing pretty much nothing. Correct. And when the athletes first used IPC, did they have any comments or thoughts around that? It's a really, really enjoyable time if you have a moderately high pain threshold. Those, those cuffs can get relatively tight. So that's okay for some people. For others, if you have maybe tight ITBs on the day, it could be a little bit of an issue. But the athletes generally enjoy that because, again, I think as a physiologist, I think you follow the principle that if you feel like something is going to do something, then you'll go with it. And because there's that sensation of the pressure, the athletes are generally pretty positive on what they think the outcome will be. So athlete reporting on that was pretty positive mostly. Yeah, you had just your performance aspects. You also had some other measures such as blood lactate, RPEs and so forth. Was there any differences with those who used IPC versus if you didn't? No, this is one of the the odd ones really that we found was that there weren't any differences across VO2, uh, accumulated oxygen deficit, any partial pressure of O2, pH, blood lactate, RPE. None of these measures turned up to show that there was any sort of difference. And that also shaped our opinion on what the second IPC application did as well, because you could imagine potentially if there is uh, a technique that improves blood flow, improves oxygen delivery, you use it after a massive event, potentially it can also act as some sort of clearance for those metabolic byproducts. But because we didn't find any difference in any of these results, and you know these results here in this second paper, they're representing post-event or the actual event results, whereas we did measures all throughout. I think they end up being across the 80 minutes or something like nine measures. So in the tables of this JCR paper, there's just a few that are actually mentioned, but there weren't any differences in terms of any accelerated recovery. But I think that then sheds light on to the mechanisms of what's actually happening. If we don't have any changes in VO2, AOD, or any lactates, then something I think is probably happening within inside the muscle cell that is probably uh, driving this increase in performance. Do you have any thoughts or ideas which, which may be doing this? 
I can give you some ideas. I, I think that there is probably some sort of reduction in uh, reactive oxidative species that interacting with the mitochondria to enable it to operate more efficiently. There's a lot of research that's been done in this in the medical side of IPC research. Uh, I think just the practicalities of being able to achieve that in uh, a sporting performance research is, is a little bit limited, but there has been a paper coming out of New Zealand actually, Lindsay, who looked at markers of oxidation within the blood and found that there was significantly reduced oxidation. And that was coinciding with, although it was amateurs, a above 10% increase in VO2. Just to give a little bit more depth there, what is reactive oxidative species and what does that mean in relation to performance or oxygen delivery? Uh, reactive oxidative species, they occur as a result of faults within the electron transport chain within the mitochondria. So the more duress that your mitochondria is under to produce energy and the greater rates that are around it, the more times there'll be some sort of error that occurs there where an electron slips out, attaches to an oxygen species, and then that can do damage to cell walls, membranes, DNA even. So they are quite detrimental to the function of muscles. So their output of power, their ability to even have energy within them. So if this technique, IPC, reduces the amount of reactive oxidative species within your mitochondria where you are producing the energy, then you can effectively retain your ability to, uh, to produce energy during a high rate. Yeah, that's basically, I think, how we end up having these performance increases because you're able to continue to perform at a high rate, whereas when you do have this uh, metabolic damage from these species, then you have to reduce your rate of output because your muscles no longer function the way that you want them to. Yeah, that's a nice way of describing it. I really like that. And you spoke about perceptual measures, and I've done IPC with a few of the athletes that I work with. And not necessarily it's the RP of the session, but one question I always ask is, you know, how do you feel prior to warm up? And all of them tend to report in a really simple way. I just warm up easier. I just feel a little bit better. Were you able to tease any of that information out of the athletes or, or just in bypassing? Was there any comments around that? Yeah, that was quite an interesting one. The athletes actually tended to remark that they felt significantly worse after having an IPC after the event. So prior to, there were no no inclinations as to whether they experienced just the sham or the control or the IPC, but following the event, they felt significantly more exhausted. That's a really nice point there that you teased out. Is that just because they performed better, do you think? Um, I think it is before because they perform better. I think if you're any sort of high-level athlete in a racing sport and you know that you're going at, uh, let's talk about rowing, if you're doing a split of 130, you know there's a big difference between 130 and 129. It's a huge difference. And I think these guys are just remarking on that because, you know, in the end, the the second, if you talk about the difference in seconds, over a 1,000 meter kayak ergo, that ends up being around about seven to eight seconds. So there's a lot of time to be made up there. And I think that incurs a significant cost in the athlete. And 
although we might not have found it within the blood measures or the aerobic measures or ventilatory measures, I think these guys' perceptual measures that that was, yeah. Yeah, it's just a really interesting side point, really. Just uh, I know when I talk to athletes, that's that's their comment, and that's a re really good comment from your end. I think just talking about those conversations, you know, how could you capture that in the study? You probably can't. They are the real valuable tools we have as coaches to be able to tell the athletes to go, or if they say, "Oh, man, I'm just wrecked," afterwards you say, "Well, uh, a you perform <laughs> you perform better, so potentially." you're going to be Makes sore sense. anyway but you, you know you say well that's normal that's something that we would expect to see that potentially you feel a little bit worse but especially if you're then looking at your work there that second ipc before round number two if they're then able to back that up i think that from a i guess a training viewpoint and then being able to take that into a competition that gives them great confidence to be able to use that in respect to a, a tool that they can be using on competition day Mm, definitely and that, that's the hope it's it's a minor frustration of mine that research uptake into standard practice doesn't occur maybe as fast as it could and its effect on uh yeah standard practice isn't isn't as immediate but i'd like to think that the guys can really take this and run with it as soon as they feel they're confident with it and i think the the results in this publication should give them that confidence yeah, and I always think with that, I, I, I think exactly like yourself, well, why aren't people using it? But I guess now as I've been doing a lot longer is, is that if I get one person to do it and they have a positive experience, that's a good thing. And typically it's a slow uptake and that's just the nature of the beast until you know we could be having this same conversation in five, ten years' time and it becomes the norm. You know, And they'll be looking at something new as the additive intervention that they might be having. Who knows, I might have a little hypoxic unit with them as well on the sideline prior to going on. Uh, yeah, definitely. It, it, whilst this stuff takes a bit of time to go from journals to real life, you know, there's so many different innovations all the time and it just evolves so quickly. So it'll be a bit of a lag time, but when it hits, it'll be transitioning pretty rapidly, I think. Yeah, definitely. And, and a lot of people who are successful already, I think, sometimes are a little reluctant to try something new because they have their routine and and it's that routine which they sometimes attribute success to one question i've got for you is always stuck in my mind it's a, it's a five minute on off protocol has anyone ever looked at a shorter protocol so i, I joke and i say my social media protocol of three minutes on one minute off with some of the athletes i've worked with and they've just anecdotally said they feel just as good has there been any research into looking at alterating the times so that it could be a bit shorter? Yeah, there has been some research and some of the medical stuff shows that the shorter durations don't really have such an effect. Um, and Dr. Cocking of the Aspire Academy looked into varying a lot of the times as well and found that, again, the shorter durations weren't as effective. And to the extent where not in one of his papers, but in a separate paper, a one-minute IPC time period was actually used as a sham. Yeah, okay, right. Okay, yeah. that's good to know. For me, that's wonderful. You've, you've taken your first paper and then you've actually then said, well, you know, from a, I've read that as an SNC coach or just as a coach and I've gone, I could go and implement that tomorrow. I think that has immense benefit for all coaches and athletes out there that they can actually take that, look at the protocol and go, 
I could do that. Uh, I, I, you know, my hat goes off to you that you're able to, to show that. And as you said, hopefully more people take in onto it. Cheers. Yeah. So where, where to next for you, Sam? You're, you're obviously waiting for your, your final tick from your PhD to come through. Well, this is actually a bit of a fortunate time period that I actually get to work on those revisions with no other distractions. I've just been recently employed by Volleyball Australia, actually as a coach down in Canberra. So that's been quite good. However, that's obviously the time where no athletes can train. So it's kind of fortunate that that coincides with the returning of the thesis revision so I can actually get time to work on it. In terms of further research, there's nothing currently sitting there for me. There's just a few additional papers that have to be finished up after data collection from my time at Western Sydney. So before we close up there, Sam, any future directions in terms of BFR that you see or that, that really sparks interest in the space? Just the application of the technique. So I, I'd love to see that the technique gets a go in potentially another research study or in practice where the exercise, the performance itself is really limited somewhat in its inspired oxygen. So I think swimming, IPC within swimming can be a really fantastic use of its potential. And furthermore to that, it, it could be used potentially in some sort of safety capacity in areas where you are having to hold your breath. So, you know, my creative desire is that you get big wave surfers doing IPC prior to going out for sessions because it can improve their breath hold time. I, there's a lot of research showing that it can improve breath hold time, but that's quite a novel concept. Will it get picked up by professional surfers that are somewhat of a counterculture? Don't know, but you know, if it does get a place in the swimming culture of Australia in the Olympics, you know, I imagine something like a 200 metre event that would be perfect for it. Significantly reduce skeletal muscle oxygenation, get a very magnified effect of what IPC can do. I think that would be great. Hopefully if there's a big wave surfer out there, look both of us up. Sam will help you with the protocol. I'll help you with the cuffs. So, uh between both of us will uh, help improve your performance on those big waves. But they are the applications which I think have immense value. Moving from athletic into gen pop, is there anything in that space that you think that potentially could be explored further? Yeah, I think that the deoxygenation of the muscle that's created by the IPC can actually replicate some of the benefits or the stimuli from aerobic exercise. So I think potentially in sedentary individuals where there isn't somewhat of an opportunity to do exercise, and we know that high-intensity exercise is probably the best form, you can potentially use this technique to get some of the similar benefits, some of their health benefits. I even had a friend who had a spinal cord accident, um, and I think the potential exists within there to prevent some of the muscle atrophy or prevent some of the negative effects that ensue from having stationary limbs and stationary muscles. Yeah, definitely. And also know from just a load quantification as well. Um, one of my other previous podcasts, uh, Sam Tate, who's in a wheelchair and obviously he has to train with his upper body and then he has to wheel himself around. So anything that he can actually do to, I guess, save some kind of load or same, some kind of energy or, or cost on his muscles so he can train but then train effectively, but then also have the arms to be able to wheel himself around for the rest of the day and so forth, you know, I think have great benefit for just gen pop in, in particular. 
Yeah, certainly. And I'm, you know, I'd even go further to saying that uh, in the older population as well, where high intensity activity is not likely to occur, and we know that high intensity activity is more likely to provide health benefits, and this is a potential alternative or a supplement to some of the exercise that's already been completed. Sam, thank you very much. This has been a wealth of information. We've we've started off obviously in, in your area of IPC, but you've I think your stories and your examples and extrapolations has really opened my mind up to a, to a couple of more ideas that I hadn't thought about. Love the surfing idea, and uh, can obviously see there's a bit of a surfboard in the back here. This podcast that we're doing. That's true. Yeah as you're sitting on your rooftop in Manly. But thank you for your time. Obviously, is is there a way of people getting a hold of you if they want to? Yep, so I have an Instagram handle, Beach Shally Ball. So just Beach S Halley Ball. That's an easy one to go off. Otherwise, I'm sure, Chris, you could probably attach my email to this one. I'm on ResearchGate, I'm on LinkedIn as well. So anywhere that you wanna click me a message, that'll be fine. Yeah, and I'll put that into the, the show notes as well. So if anyone wants to get a hold of Sam, please do. It, this has been a great conversation. It's really nice to hear how you've been able to. Obviously, you come from that sporting background as well. So I think that really helps with the application, especially into that that real world. And you can think laterally, not only as an athlete, but also as a coach. I think it has immense value in this type of environment. Good luck with your, your final tick and uh enjoy the graduation it's a it's a momentous occasion and i think for anyone that does any sort of study but obviously postgraduate study at, at this kind of level so congratulations in advance and uh good luck with the next little phase of your career and uh, i look forward to catching up over time and seeing how this whole thing evolves awesome thank you very much chris